finds. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this privilege of gathering together as family on a night that you've ordained from eternity past, Father, for our edification. Thank you for the messages that have been coming from this pulpit, and thank you for always encouraging us, letting us know that you love us, that we have the incredible privilege of loving you back. Father, thank you for the privilege also of fellowshipping together as family. In the name of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, thank you for the ability to evangelize others, Father. On that note, we're praying for those that can't be with us this evening and most of all for those that are still lost. We are so very grateful and thankful for all that you accomplished on the cross so many years ago. We just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, the deceitfulness of sin, part 73. One of the summary points regarding our recent emphasis on encouragement is this up here on the board. Don't be an island. This came out on Tuesday evening. It's wonderful advice. Don't be an island. Uh, I had a pretty lengthy discussion with my family last evening um, with the phenomenon that's going on uh, in our own, I don't know how it is elsewhere, but definitely in our own country where um, everyone under a certain age nowadays seems to be very comfortable with being and thinking and persisting like an island. Um, and there's, I mean, let's face it, God created us to be social creatures. He really did. If you read your Bible, it's really about, as I've taught, it's really about people. And it's about relationships. And Satan is doing a bang-up job of separating people and creating islands. And this is why I have to teach the way I've taught this is why Scott has to teach what he teaches, um, even in part points of review, that it's the culture that we live in that lends itself to individuals, even encourages people to be islands. But the Bible says don't be an island. That's literally the exact opposite of what the Bible teaches us. Don't be an island or think others are okay being that way. And that was the point that stuck out. Hebrews 10.25, of course, uh, don't forsake of uh, assembling together in Romans 1.12, encouraged by each other's faith, etc. Um, but that second point is what stuck out to me on Tuesday. Don't think that others are okay because you've chosen this perverted path of being an island. Um, don't think that everyone is like that because that's not how we were even created. Always, here's my point, always think of both sides of your relationships. Always think of both sides of your relationships. Here's a second reference in the NLV up here on the board. <clears throat> Romans 1.12, I think this came out on Sunday, the NLV. Both of us need help, Paul wrote. I can help make you, your faith strong, and you can do the same for me. We need each other. It's so sad because I think 
we don't have a problem. Today's individual doesn't have a problem needing other people. Matter of fact, we're really good at taking. But we get scared when we hear the words, I need you, pointed to us. We skirt the responsibility. We dodge the uh, friendship or the relationship because, you know, God forbid we actually enter into a meaningful relationship where there might actually be uh, a real connection between human beings. It doesn't have to be romantic. I'm talking about even friendships, especially, I mean, especially in the faith, especially in the faith. I really don't care to go many other places than here. Home, here, back home, here. Go out, you know, I'm not saying we don't evangelize, so don't get goofy on me, but you know what I'm saying. The most comfortable times in my life are either at home or here. So I guess I do need you. We need to focus on both sides of our relationships. Focus is what keeps us from straying from such a simple approach to living. It's a very good thing to understand this. And even set up a lifestyle conducive to such things. A lifestyle that um, doesn't produce you on an island. Which for some of you means get rid of that smartphone, drop some of the apps or something, uh, get, off the, get off the computer, get off from out in front of the television, um, whatever it is that is conducive to you being an island. Start thinking about changes. You don't have to be like everyone else. Matter of fact, we're called to be very different as Christians. So it's a good thing to understand these things, even set up a lifestyle conducive to such things. As you'll see in this week's blog titled Short-Wicked Firecrackers, we need to recognize the pitfalls and the temptations in our lives even before they materialize into real threats to our peace. That's half the battle, is recognizing certain scenarios before they're in front of you and avoiding them, saying, oh, <laughs> I know where this is headed, you know, or I know where this, is, I know where this conversation's going, or I know where this relationship is headed, I know where this is going to go, in uh, avoiding those situations altogether. So make sure you read that um, blog. It's coming out. It's always available on Friday, by the way. You know that. But it comes out in your email on Saturday. So the idea the Spirit's sort of uh, sifting through this evening is that we need to recognize the pitfalls and the temptations in our lives even before they materialize into real threats to our peace. Here's the counsel from the Spirit. Keep your eyes on the prize. Up here on the board. Keep your eyes on the prize. When our focus and affections are diverted from Christ, misery seeps in and ruins our joy. In this new estate, we don't feel like doing anything but wallowing in self-pity and self-induced misery, encouraging others is no longer top of mind. And that's a real problem. We become effectively islands. 
Miserable islands at that. Miserable islands at that. So this is why Paul wrote about remaining humble and remaining focused on Christ. I'll give you the message up here on the board. Philippians 3, 13 to 14. I'm not saying that I have this all together, that I have it made, but I am well on my way, reaching out for Christ, who has so wondrously reached out for me. Friends, don't get me wrong. By no means do I count myself an expert in all of this, but I've got my eye on the goal, where God is beckoning us onward, to Jesus. I'm off and running, and I'm not turning back. That's what focus looks like. It doesn't mean that you're perfect. It doesn't mean you're not going to lose focus. It just means that your eye is on the prize, that you've got a real direction, and you do not allow your eyes to be diverted. So if you think about our lesson, I mean, what are we on, part 73 right now? So much of it has been on that topic alone not allowing, not being deceived by sin. Because as soon as you're deceived by sin, you're seduced by it somehow. That's the whole point of this series. Do not let anything divert your attention from the Lord Jesus Christ. Do not let anything, or anyone for most of you, it's usually people, divert your attention from the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the kingdom of darknesses favorite strategy, as we've been noting, is to use fear. Is to use fear. It's not always um, an attraction, let's say. Many times it's fear that rattles our cages and gets us to, you know, divert our attention from the prize. We're afraid, and when we're afraid, we start making bad decisions. The idea is not to let sin or the kingdom of darkness get under your skin. Not let it get that far. It's like I said at the beginning of class, see the telltale signs before they materialize in front of you, before it's too late, before you know, you're know 99% sure you're going to fail every time. Look out. See what's coming. So one of the kingdom of darkness's favorite strategies is to use fear. And I use the, all I can think of is the term boogeyman. I'm sorry. I apologize if that doesn't resonate, but... That's what I think about. I just see so many people afraid of this boogeyman. And it's sort of this, many times, this nameless fear. Just they live in fear. They may not even be able to articulate it. From time to time, yeah, it does manifest in a person or a situation. But it's deeper than that. They literally live in fear. And so you have to learn to resist your fear of this so-called boogeyman, whoever or whatever that is in your life. Here's a picture of the boogeyman for you. This is probably the best rendition I could come up with. No teeth. All bark, no bite. No teeth. That's the boogeyman. That's all, that's, that is as much real influence the kingdom of darkness has over you. It just lies to you and says it has more. It lies to you and convinces you that it has more, that it can hurt you, that it can overwhelm God's provision in your life. That's all a lie. 
If God allows something to disappear because the kingdom of darkness thinks it's pulling one over on you, you know what? God doesn't want you to have it. And God knows what's best for you. So chances are, I'm being wise, you shouldn't have it in your life anyways. That's where the whole perversion of American prosperity comes in. Oh, the kingdom of darkness took my job. Oh, they, they, you know, they sued me. I got dragged through the courts by so-and-so. So maybe you weren't supposed to have all that money. Maybe you weren't supposed to have that friend. Maybe you weren't supposed to have that position. Maybe, I don't know. But stop blaming, blaming God. Those are all, that's how the lies sort of, but nonetheless, that's what the boogeyman looks like. So think about that. Some of you are afraid of man, right? Some of you are actually afraid of what other people can do to you. Some of you live in fear. Well, here's what the Bible says, Psalm 56, 4. In God whose word I praise, in God I have put my trust, I shall not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? So for all of you that are afraid of other people, here's what the Bible has to say. Others of you are afraid of financial ruin. And yet, the Bible says, go to Jeremiah 29.11. Jeremiah 29.11. Some of you would never even dream of changing jobs or making a better decision about your career uh, because you're afraid of financial ruin. You know how I feel about that. I think I'm right in feeling that way. In America, you're already a bazillion times more wealthy than someone that's living just fine on the other side of the, of the world. You've just bought a lie. So other of you, uh, some of you are afraid of, of, of man. Others are afraid of financial ruin. Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Yeah. Do you see any doubt in the Lord's words there? He says, I have, that's right, I have plans for you. You can rest assured that the Lord God has absolute plans for you, has a will for your life. Um, why are you worried about financial ruin? Do you um, not trust God? Is that what you're basically saying because your actions speak so loud? You basically are saying in so many words, I don't trust God. I trust my own abilities more than I trust God's ability to take care of me. Still yet others of you are afraid of personal harm. I, mean, I know people that barely go out or won't go out after dark. Um, you name it. Won't do this, won't do that, because they live in fear of personal harm. What did Jesus have to say about this? Go to Luke 9.57. Luke 9.57. Oh boy, I'm gonna, my, you know, there's going to be um, a tornado this evening. And it's going to rip my roof off. I'm going to go get sucked up into the cyclone and I'm going to die. <laughs> or, you know, every time there's a, a, a strong wind, oh, a hurricane's coming or whatever. You know, this kind of a thing. Luke 9.57. This is what Jesus had to say about these kinds of things. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests 
but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But he said to him, Allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but, you know, the Budinskis, right? But, always a but with us. I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. That's Jesus' way of saying, what are you doing? What are you worried about? If I say follow me, then follow me. If I tell you I'm going to take care of you, then I'm going to take care of you. You either trust me or you don't. And if I don't want you to have something, you're not going to get it from me. I'm not going to lie to you and say that the kingdom of darkness won't give it to you because it absolutely will in its seduction of you. But I won't because I don't want to hurt you. I don't want to damage you on your way to glory. I have always loved the way Jesus copes and deals with the lies from the kingdom of darkness. Always. Love the way he copes with and deals with the lies from the kingdom of darkness. This is a point of concentration. So I need you to um, buckle down here for a moment. So often Jesus doesn't even address the issue or the question being asked of him because the questions he receives or received often came from a bad perspective. Right? Often came from a bad perspective. And we can get all wrapped up, and I think that's one of the great success stories of the kingdom of darkness, is they get us wrapped up in things that don't even matter that we, we find ourselves arguing, and then in our arguments, because eventually something seeps in, we become fearful even, because now we're engaged in something unholy. And once you go that route, you know, all of a sudden doubts and fears start percolating up. It's an uncomfortable situation, etc., etc. Jesus was way wiser than all of us put together. And very often he would see right through the smoke screen and go, I'm not even going to answer that. I'm going to ask you a question. I'm not going to answer that because it's from a root of bad, a bad perspective. I can't, I can't even answer it properly other than to say it's a bad question. It's bad perspective. I see it. I'm not even going to bother with it. And so Jesus very often did that. You know that if you've been reading your Bible. He would get asked a question and he would skirt the question and then get to the real point. So he often never addressed the questions because they came from a bad perspective. And if you don't know what I mean, I really highly recommend. I even, I even checked to make sure there wasn't any issues and that this thing was absolutely on the website because it's from years ago. Um, if you don't know what I'm talking about right now, read the blog titled Take Me Out to the Ball Game." Read it. Find it. All you have to do, I'm telling you how to do it. Go to the website. Go to where it says blog. When it has a little space to type for search words, type in ball game. And it's the only one that comes up. I just tested it. Go read it. You'll know exactly what I'm talking about. This whole world is so screwed up. 
Everybody's playing a game. It's like I was telling Sean last night. Everybody's playing a game. Satan gives you good and evil, doesn't he? This is good and this is, But the entire system of thinking is evil. Within that ballpark, there is such a thing as good and evil. And everybody's cheering and, you know, back and forth. And, oh, you know, and Oprah's talking about how evil this guy is and, you know, and how wonderful this person is because they walked an old lady across the street and now this one's giving out free shoes and how wonderful they, of course, they hate Christ. Okay? They do nothing for the kingdom of, of God. But somehow they're dubbed good. And in this little perverted little ballpark, there's good and evil. But the point is, the entire ballpark is evil on the grand scheme of things. That's what Jesus always said. They would try to suck him over here and say, well, which side's better? And he'd be like, neither. You need to get your thinking up here, my friend, because the stuff you're talking about, I want nothing to do with. But didn't we, but didn't we, that's, yeah, weren't we good in our own little world? Didn't we do good things? Wood, hay, and straw. You have to elevate your thinking. Go, I'm serious. Read that blog. Take me out to the ball game. In any case, again, concentrate. This is the point I was getting to. Sin has a goal. Deceit always results in poor perspective. Don't even read any further. Stop it. Stop it. I can see you guys. You're all like... Deceit always results in poor perspective. Do you believe that? You bet. You should. If you're deceived about something, you always end up with a wrong perspective. Poor perspective guarantees misguided responses to the stimuli of life. In other words, if, if, if you're looking at something the wrong, all the wrong way, or even partially the wrong way, when it happens in front of you, like life happens, you have an adverse response to something. You have the wrong response. You might even think something's good. But because you've been deceived and your perspective is cockeyed, it's actually bad, just like what I just described here with this blog. You've bought a lie that this garbage in here matters. And just because Oprah says you're a swell old pal or a swell gal doesn't mean jack. As far as God's concerned, it's garbage. You didn't make it because you found a, a, a nice home or something or were able to afford a new set of wheels or a new haircut or something. You didn't make it because of those things. That's a lie. And when you start believing those lies, now your perspective is cockeyed. And once your perspective is cockeyed, when the rest of life approaches you, your responses to it are also cockeyed. And then finally, bad habits form as a result and momentum is gained. Until someone like me or God the Holy Spirit through your own reading or some other way by the grace of God, until you're jolted and told to wake up and snap out of it, you're going to keep going in that direction. I know some of you right now, listen to my voice right now, you have people that love you that are trying to snap you out of something and you're a jackass and you won't listen to them because you're self-absorbed and you're deceived. And it's not even the first time you've gone down this route. Do you understand what I'm getting at? That's what deception looks like. It always ends up with poor perspective, 
Poor perspective guarantees misguided responses to the stimuli of life. And then, of course, the longer you go with that thing, bad habits start forming and momentum is gained. Now it's a heck of a lot easier to continue in that wrong way. And you know who's cheering? Right there. Satan's cheering the whole way. Bravo. Bravo. And he's over here in the grandstands giving out cotton candy for free. As long as you stay in here. This is why we aren't to, quote, look back, a la Luke 9.62, once we've put our hand to the plow. Here's some additional perspective from Jesus regarding our previous point. Again, here's our previous point. Eyes on the prize. When our focus and affections are diverted from Christ, misery seeps in and ruins our joy. In this new estate, we don't feel like doing anything but wallowing in self-pity and self-induced misery. Encouraging others is no longer top of mind. In other words, what are you going to do? You live for self. If you're deceived, you're living for self. This world is filled with distractions, as we've been noting. Something our Creator knew when He authored the Bible. Go to Matthew 6.25. Matthew 6, verse 25. We just need to get our perspectives back. And it's not, the, again, I say, I've said this many times, the beautiful thing about perspective is it can be changed in a moment. And you can be delivered in a moment. You just need to have your perspective changed. Most of you have enough of the Bible in your soul. Matthew 6.25 For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink nor for your body, as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air that they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin, and yet... I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of what? Little faith. Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat? Again, this goes out to those who are worried about things, you know, what man, financial, personal harm, whatever. Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Who here can possibly say, just maybe in this past week, hasn't been overly concerned at some point about the future. If you've watched the news, that's almost immediately the case. The sky is falling, right? But who can honestly say that you haven't spent any real time, should I say wasted any real time, worrying about things outside of your control? Here's the perspective we want to focus on. It's very simple. Go to Romans 8, 28. Romans 8, verse 28. 
Romans 8, 28. Here's the perspective we need to have. It's very simple. We're in summary mode right now, obviously, in our series, because we're just about done. Romans 8, 28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. I suppose you either believe that or you don't. You either rest in that or you don't. Here's what the Bible really has to say about being afraid of the boogeyman as a general principle. Have this perspective in you. Go to Psalm 139, 13. Psalm 139, verse 13. It's incredible how we accept that we've been created. We accept that we have a creator. We accept that God loves us, but yet we doubt his love. We doubt his provision. We, I guess in our own way, suppose that he's um, a liar in a way. Psalm 139, 13. For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. There's a passage for uh, abortionists. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. Do you get the magnitude of that right there? Does that give you any perspective? It should. The days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not yet one of them. Think about that. Before you were even born, God knew when you would die. It doesn't mean go buy a motorcycle and ride on the handlebars down Route 44. <laughs> Read Matthew 4 for that. Do not put God to the test. But you get the point. In terms of fear um, and anxiety and worry about what man can do to you or what... Really? Financial ruin in America? Really? Or uh, personal harm or what have you? That's wonderful perspective. Um, so it got me thinking. Just sort of think with me here. God knew before human history even began the following about you personally. Now think about you. Don't think about others like you always like to do, especially when it's a tough lesson or something like that. God knew before human history even began the following about you personally. So make this as personal as you can possibly be. He knew the following. The time and place of your birth, for example, your birthday, and the country, for example. The circumstances of your birth, good, bad, or ugly. The family you'd grow up in, for example, blood, adoptive, uh, orphanage, what have you. The injuries you'd receive, from others as a child, for example, abuse. Your IQ, your ability to make money, etc. For example, the job you'd have, the bosses you've had, etc. And he even knew the lies you'd believe due to religion and your own susceptibility to being deceived. 
before you were even born. He knew all of this. God knew all of these things before you were even born. And as I mentioned on Sunday, if you understand that God's in control of human history, including the time and circumstances of your death even, why would we ever fear anything? If God's got everything under control, why fear anything? Why are there so many um, people that are afraid in this world? Why? Because they believe lies. God says, don't be anxious for nothing. I got you covered. Then why is everybody so afraid? Because you believe lies. It's literally that simple. Because you believe lies. So the question really is, why would we ever fear anything knowing that God's in control? And that's a really fair question, isn't it? So, with that perspective, up here on the board, in the English Standard Version, we were given Ephesians 5, 15 to 17. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, making the best use of your time. Understanding what the will of the Lord is. That should be your focus. Let him worry about the boogeyman. Let him worry about the boogeyman. You do as you're instructed. Make the best use of your time and understand what his will for you is. What's the best use of your time? Well, Scott brought up a good practical example of our true hearts on this matter. And it's just a practical example. Because we've all got this thing in our back pocket somewhere. You know, this little bucket list. Anybody have one of those? It's okay. You can raise your hand. Yeah, nobody's, I got none of those. I just live for Jesus. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What about that rope climbing expedition you want to go on in Cabo or something like that? That's not on your list anymore? As of right now, no. <laughs> What's on your bucket list? Oh, that's an interesting question, isn't it? If you're, if you're in a party filled with unbelievers, you whip it right out, right? You're like, oh, man, I want to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to do this. I'm going to go skydiving. I'm going to do all this stuff. Go to a Christian party. You're like, I want to love Jesus more. I want to serve more. I want to evangelize more. I want to be holy. Go back to your friends in the world. Man, I'm going to go race car driving. I'm going to form a... I'm going, to do all, I'm going to drink 10 beers and throw up and then take, drink 10 more. Yeah, right? I'm going to learn how to rap. <laughs> Is your list filled with to-dos that bring glory to God? Or are they merely wood, hay, and straw? It's really simple, isn't it? Is all those things that you want to do, are they actually bringing glory to God? Or are you co-celebrating with the world? Do you have one life in the church and with your relationship with God and then a completely different one with the world? Which one really dominates your so-called bucket list? It's a fair question. That's between you and the Lord. And you know the 
reality of it. So, you know, don't try to like skirt it and make excuses and make loopholes. Well, God loves me and he wants me to go skydiving. Okay. God is the one who controls history. Up here on the board, Hebrews 1.3, part B, amplified. Jesus Christ is upholding and maintaining and propelling all things, the entire physical and spiritual universe, by his powerful word, carrying the universe along to its predetermined goal. You really control nothing. If God wants something to happen, rest assured, it's going to happen. You might say, no, I could go out tomorrow and, I don't know, maybe I'm a diabetic and I want to eat a bunch of cupcakes, so I'm going to go out right now just to prove to you, Mr. Baldy, I can eat cupcakes. And he might let you eat cupcakes, and then you'll have some weird episode and go, what are you doing? Because I'm not mocked. Do you know what I'm getting at? To amplify this, let's read a passage that we've been dancing around now for a few messages. Go to uh, Psalm 28, which is a psalm of David. It's actually really short. Psalm 28, David, Mr. Humility himself, a man after God's own heart, might ask, how did he, you know, came up, you know, how did he beat Goliath? How did he wrestle wild animals? Um, how did he do these things? How did he, have, how did he stand up to people that were, even when he was a youngster, the way he did? He was humbled. But remember, hum humility isn't our shocks. Humility has real strength to it because it depends on the strength of the Lord. Psalm 28.1, To you, O Lord, I call my rock. Do not be deaf to me, for if you are silent to me, I will become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my supplications when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your holy sanctuary. Do not drag me away with the wicked and with those who work iniquity who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. That would be a picture of the small ballpark in that blog that I know you're all going to read now. Who speak with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. Requite them uh, according to their work and according to the evil of their practices. All right, is it requite or requit? Anyone? I'm going with requite. Requite them according to the deeds of their hands. Repay them for their recompense. You guys are a big help. Because they do not regard the work of the Lord, nor the deeds of his hands, he will tear them down and not build them up. Blessed be the Lord, because he has heard the voice of my supplication. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him, and I am helped. Therefore, my heart exults. And with my song, I shall thank him. The Lord is their strength, and he is a saving defense to his anointed. Save your people and bless your inheritance. Be their shepherd also and carry them forever. So learn to focus on good things like this. Put a bookmark. Most of you, if you have a Bible, most of you have at least one of those little nylon page markers. Use it. Some people are like, I do? Oh, oh, look at that. I thought that was for slinging it over my shoulder and playing, you know, or just wrapping it around my finger in, in class because this pass is getting boring. <laughs> it's called a bookmark. 
Learn to focus on good things like this, always starting with this one simple truth, that God has everything under control. Man doesn't. That's you. You don't. God has everything under control. You don't. And that really alleviates, if you accept it, a lot of fear and a lot of anxiety from our lives. So there's nothing to fear. Go to 1 John 4.16. 1 John 4.16. See, we, the, the, that stupid TV, all it does is lie to you. It just says if you don't take action now, you are going to suffer. The boogeyman's coming. You better hide. You better outwit him. You better spend inordinate amounts of time in fear, worried about the boogeyman getting you. That's what diversion looks like. It's all a lie. 1 John 4.16 We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. Here it is. There is no fear in love. I'll give you a principle in a moment, but remember that. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. Now, I've got to give you a principle that you, again, it's sort of your second homework assignment. I really want you to think about the point I'm going to give you up here on the board. There is no fear in love. Do not let sin deceive you into believing in the boogeyman. Such lies are based on hatred. Focus on love and be delivered. Let me say it again. Do not, be, do not let sin deceive you into believing in the boogeyman. Such lies are based on hatred. Focus on love and be delivered. So I want all of you to either write the point down on the board or commit it to memory or go to the website, whatever. You need to promise me you'll give this point some serious thought. Fair enough? I mean it. It's a summary point. It's a big summary point. Don't let the silly word boogeyman, um, you know, fool you into thinking there's not a lot in there because there is. Don't let sin deceive you into believing in the boogeyman. Such lies are based on hatred. It's a, literally a hatred for Jesus Christ. Focus on love and be delivered. All right, then. It's time to poke our heads out of this mine shaft, my friends. We are actually on the finishing strokes of this series titled The Deceitfulness of Sin. So I want to just continue to summarize quickly. Here's what we've learned from Holy Scripture. This is what we would say is at least a baseline statement regarding God's will for us. 1 Timothy 2.4, God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Here's the principal response to God's base will that we need to reflect upon. This has been coming up time and again. The simple definition for sin. If we understand God's will, sin is any lack of conformity to God's will. Anything that thwarts His will. 
He wants you, presuming all of you are saved, He wants you to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's what He wants. And He wants you to accept it at face value. Because remember, knowing isn't just regurgitating. We've gone over that. Real knowledge, intimate knowledge, knowledge that becomes faith, that precipitates faith, that kind of knowledge. Sin is any lack of conformity to God's will, whether expressed actively or passively. Sin is fruit of satanic will. For example, go to 2 Timothy 3, 6. 2 Timothy 3, verse 6. Go quickly. These are all points of review. So we're just sort of our heads out of the mind shaft. We're looking out. We're kind of looking around. Second Timothy 3, verse 6. For among them, false teachers, teachers who teach the doctrines of demons, are those who enter into households and captivate weak women, weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses. In other words, they just lie to them. They seduce them with lies. People that are weighed down with sins that are already weak, it's not that hard to do. You just lie to them a little bit more. They're so weak, they just need any kind of attention, any kind of positive uh, influence, anything that they perceive as good, even though it might be a lie. Those are the doctrines of demons. That's the attractiveness of lies in the first place. They go into households. There's no scruples, no boundary conditions, no place they won't go. They go after the weak. They go into households and captivate weak women, weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Do you see how that is literally against God's base will? That's the effect of the doctrines of demons and the agencies that deliver them. Up here on the board, the deceitfulness of sin, the only way that folks like you and I can never come to the knowledge of the truth is if we believe lies. The greatest lies of all are regarding the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'm glad Scott brought that up in humility. He said, I had to think about that for a bit. But that's absolutely true. If you can pervert the gospel, does it really matter? Anything else that comes from anything after that? I mean, if the entire book, the entire good book, is really about the affirmation and the defense of the gospel, if you can pervert that one thing, and you're Satan, you've pretty much won. Right? You pretty much won. It's like, it's like, okay, you're first up at bat, you hit a home run, it's one to zero, and then you take the ball and leave. There's no more offense to be had. There's no more scoring. You, you take the gospel away, there's nothing. So you bet the greatest lies of all are regarding the gospel of Jesus Christ. I would argue, and I've had this discussion with Todd and Scott, among others too, Every false doctrine that I've had to defend or root out of my own soul and therefore yours has been based on some perversion of the gospel. It always traces back to some perversion of the gospel. Always. It's usually something to do with grace. Because today's favorite strategy is to pervert grace itself. Um, and once that's done, I mean, a whole host of things happens. But always, always, without fail, any perversion that I've had to um, tangle with is always a perversion of the gospel. It's just usually a one or two or three layers 
removed, right? People think it's out here, but it's actually an issue. It's actually a symptom of a perverted gospel, if you get right down to it. And that's, how, that's Satan's genius in view. Jesus knew the heart of man, a la John 2.25. One of the strategies he used to combat Satan in the kingdom of darkness was to speak in parables to those equipped with supernatural understanding. A la 1 Corinthians 2.16, we have the mind of Christ. The so-called parable of parables is our foray into all others. I've taught you this, and this really does harken back to 2015 with the start of the gospel reload. Go to Mark 4.3. Go to Mark 4.3. This is what most would call, you know, colloquially, the parable of parables. You've got to understand this one to understand the rest of them. If you get this one perverted, you get all of them perverted. And for years, I had it perverted. Why? Because I had the gospel perverted. Somehow, it was twisted in my own soul. And because the gospel was twisted, I read this wrong. But once you have the gospel right, it's like, oh yeah, makes total sense. <laughs> Mark 4.3. So you see, even a perversion of these parables it traces back to a perversion of the gospel. Mark 4.3. Listen to this. Behold, the sower went out to sow. As he was sowing, some seed fell beside the road, and the birds came up and ate it. And of course, we're talking about sowing the gospel seed. Other seed fell in the rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of soil. And after the sun had risen, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. Up here on the board, um, the deceitfulness of sin. Without saving faith, the gospel seed ultimately has no root system and therefore withers away. Even though the flesh was convinced it could produce good fruit in the absence of godly faith. That's what we just saw. For years I thought that was a saved person who you know, just didn't produce any fruit. But that's basically calling God's grace impotent. That's basically saying the gospel isn't what it actually is. Verse 7, other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it, and it yielded how much crop? No crop. What have we learned about fruit in a believer? You will produce it. You will produce it. Jesus Christ says straight up, it yielded no crop. No fruit. Up here in the board. Without saving faith, the gospel seed gets choked out by pressure ultimately yielding no crop, no godly fruit, even though the flesh counterfeited faith at the outset. Only, and here's the key, only good soil produces God's good intention in man. Verse 8, other seeds fell into the good soil, and as they grew up and increased, they yielded a crop and produced 30, 60, and a hundredfold. If you want to make distinctions amongst believers, you have to concede based on Jesus Christ's own words that you will have fruit. You may vary, 30, 60, and 100, but you know what? You absolutely will yield a crop. Verse 9, And he was saying, He who has ears to hear, a.k.a. believers only, let him hear. 
If you're saved and you're hearing this parable, you're reading this parable, you know what Jesus, Jesus was talking about. So far, we've gotten to the final slide in the series. I'm not sure if I actually got it, but this literally is the final slide. I think I've gotten to it once, but here we are. We finally make it to the last slide in the series. Sin lies to us. It is a liar. You have to, you have to accept all that that means. It lies to you. So when you think something's good, um, and there's any, you know that, um, you know all the spirit works in us? You get this sense of, all right, something's not right. Something's not adding up. That's when the red flag should go off. And you say, wait a minute. <laughs> it's not unlike Satan at all to lie to my face and tell me something's good. And if I disregard or I ignore or maybe even reject the Spirit's unction to stop and look and discern, is this so-called good thing from God? I'm going to be deceived, and I'm going to run in that direction and gain momentum over time, like we talked about at the start of class. Sin has no problem lying to you. And I'm personifying just to encapsulate everything. Sin is a liar. It mixes truth. This came out on Tuesday as well. It mixes truth with lies for the purpose of deceiving us into thinking and doing things antagonistic to the will of God. We mustn't think of sin as merely a result. A lot of people do that because it's very convenient. Oh, darn it, I sinned. Gosh darn it, I sinned. No, you sinned when you saw sin coming over the horizon and you didn't do anything about it. You made decision after decision to and get closer and closer. You get what I'm saying at? You sinned when you crossed the road to the bad side of the street. And you said, oh, look at all those seedy places over there. I think I'm going to get a closer look. <laughs> Even though the last hundred times you went over there, you fell flat on your face. And God, the Holy Spirit's like, hey, now's a good time to listen. Do not go over there. La, 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 la. Got a couple of beers in me, so I'm really not listening too well right now. Oh, I don't know why I just became a weeble, but you wobble over there because well, you're drinking, right? You wobble over there and you make horrible decisions, right? You knew better right here, James 4.17. You knew better, so therefore it's a sin. You knew not to go over there. And you went anyways because it was bright lights and music and scantily clad human beings and whatever. Uh-oh, John. Gonna move on. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Oh, Pat's not here. You dog. Right? Whatever's over there isn't good. You made, you sinned as soon as you made that conscious decision. So don't say, well, I never touched her. What'd Jesus say? If you even looked at her, you already fell. Oh, I never did that. Well, if you even thought about it, it's an unholy thought. You should have been over here on this side of the street. You get the point. So don't play that little game that we all like to play in our little religious games. You know, over at sins only are what sins are. Uh-uh. 
We mustn't think of sin as merely a result, a la James 1.15, but also a magnetic force, an influencer, a deceiver. Genesis 4.7, Psalm 51.4-5, Romans 7.7-8, 7, for example. So let's consider some scriptural references now. Go to Genesis 4.7. Excuse me. Genesis 4.7. Sin lies to us. You don't think that you're always going to catch it. This is why you have to be on guard. You have to be diligent in your own life. You cannot become complacent. Genesis 4.7. Why? Because there is something out there that wants to dominate you. That wants to dominate you. Isn't happy unless you are dominated. Some of you are already getting like the, you know, the hair on the back of your neck kind of standing up. Like, no, it's not going to happen. Really. just happened to you today. You were dominated when you crossed the street. You know. Genesis 4-7. If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. And its desire, there's our word, Tashuka, is for you. But you must master it. Its desire is to dominate you. We are born under this curse. Go to Psalm 51, verse 4. Psalm 51, verse 4. We were born under this curse. You and, there's nothing so special about you that somehow you're the one human being in the history of human beings that can run across the street whenever you feel like it, look temptation dead in the face, and never fall. You are not that good. That alone proves that you're not. Psalm 51, verse 4. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Another abortionist verse there. In sin my mother conceived In other words, you are doomed. <laughs> you were born flawed and broken and incapable. And the vestiges of all that, even though you're saved, are still there in this ridiculous, decrepit body. Sin has an inescapable influence in our lives. Being born with a flesh, enslaved to it. Again, the point on the board, sin lies to us. It is a liar. It mixes truth with lies for the purpose of deceiving us into thinking and doing things antagonistic to the will of God. We mustn't think of sin as merely a result but also a magnetic force, an influencer, and a deceiver. I'll give you one more passage since I've got about a minute and a half. As I highlighted once again in a recent blog, or blogs plural, sin gets excited. Listen, I don't want to be gross or weird and close out on a wrong foot, but if I parade... Oh, I don't know. One of the one of the guys. If I parade some scampily clad lady up here from Las Vegas, and she starts doing her little thing, am I the only one that's not that's going to have a like a little bit of a fall at least? Something? Am I going to try to sneak a peek once in a while? Sorry, Tam. Right? <laughs> Tam's like, like I didn't know. Right? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I I could bring her in the church. 
and you would fail. Ladies, I don't know what your thing is because I'm a guy, so whatever gets you going. Uh, some of you are like, a hairdryer. What? Some <laughs> shoes. A Hermes purse. Right? Is it Hermes? Am I right? It's not Hermes. What's the wicked expensive one? Oh, oh, aren't you just so special? Now I know that you're definitely a Hermes or whatever the heck it is. Whatever it is, Andrea, shouldn't you be thinking about it, you perv? Right? <laughs> whatever it is, ladies, I don't know. Who knows? <laughs> uh, sin, you could be right here. And somehow sin would break through. And he'd be like, oh, yes, I'm going to go talk to her after class. Leo's like, not me, please. I'm going to go get her number. I'm going to go talk. I'm going to flirt with her. Or I'm going to touch the Hermes bag. How do you say it again? Hammers? How do you say it? You got to say it. It's not important. In the middle of a message... Your sin will break through. <laughs> Go to Romans 7, 7 quickly. Right? You know, half the battle is just being honest with yourself. You realize that, right? You're all sick. You're all pervs. It's true. And sin takes advantage of it. Satan has no boundary conditions. You understand? None. No boundary conditions. Romans 7, 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So now you're like, you know, hey, did someone just say I can't do something? I, you're saying I can't cross the street? I can go over there and, and window shop. Don't tell me. Uh-uh. That's sin. That's sin. But sin, taking the opportunity through the commandment. In other words, the commandment itself is actually what excites sin. It actually activates this desire, this increased desire to dominate. Don't you dare tell me what to do. That's sin. Taking the opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting of every kind. How funny is that? You shall not covet. Oh, yeah, I'll covet everything. <laughs> right? For apart from the law, sin is dead. I'll just end with that because I'm over time. Sin lies to us. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this wonderful opportunity to fellowship together, to break bread, and to learn the truth. We know that's your will. We need to understand, Father, by your grace, that anything that thwarts it is no good, is evil. Thank you for teaching us the truth. We just ask for your blessings as we take the things we've learned back to our homes. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.